Good evening again. If you came in a little bit late, my name is Nama, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm privileged to be leading us through our service and, and preaching God's Word. Um, as I mentioned before, we are going through a 90-day devotional through the Psalms as a church, and we decided as a, as a leadership and as pastors to then set our evening worship uh, sermon series through the Psalms as we're tracking along in this devotion um, together. So today we uh, have landed on Psalm 13, and a little bit of context, Psalm 13 was, was written by David. It is uh, an individual lament, like we see from the point of view of David, him lamenting, him grieving to God, and these are the words that, that he put forth. So in these short six verses, there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm uh, excited to do that. So let's read our scripture for tonight, and then as is customary here, if you would respond as a part of the people with thanks be to God. So let's read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. As we're considering this psalm, this lament, this raw, honest prayer that David is, we're going to look at a couple of things to help guide our time, and it's primarily like how David is praying, what he is praying, and, and ultimately to whom he is praying. Um, during the, the beginning parts of the, the pandemic when we were uh, in sort of this statewide lockdown and quarantine, there was a period where uh, I kind of developed a, a, a kind of knack and a, a joy for baking. And um, prior to moving to Pittsburgh, my wife and I, we came from Boston. We were there for about a, a dozen years or so. And there was a place in Boston, a bakery in Boston that did this amazing uh, pastry called the Sticky Bun. Now, if you can imagine sort of something that's sort of like this ginormous kind of cinnamon roll covered in caramel and pecans and things like that, like that was something that I, that I enjoyed as a, as a treat every once in a while while I was in Boston. And so when I got to this joy of baking during quarantine, the first thing that came to mind was I'm going to try to recreate that sticky bun from Boston. And of course, it, it's like this yeast dough, it needs time to rise. It was in the thick of when things were still cold, so things didn't rise very well. And so lo and behold, as you can imagine, the end result of my sticky bun was nowhere close to what, what came out of Joanne Chang's flour bakery. But I learned one thing, one very true thing, that is that counterfeit items do not compare to the real thing. That as we think about, you know, what it is that you might be craving or something that you have placed in your mind as, man, that was the real thing. If I could just have that one thing right now, whether it's food, whether it's an experience, counterfeit things do not line up to that. So that when we think about David, when we think about, and we'll look through his grief and lament, counterfeit sources of comfort are not going to line up to the real thing who is God himself. 
that in the midst of utter despair and deep brokenness, God is the only one that you can turn to. In the midst of utter despair, God is the only place to turn. So we'll, we'll look at this in, in actually two ways, is David's posture of his psalm and the prayer itself. So David's posture and his prayer. So first to look at David's posture, as we've read and as you may have heard, there's many, many expressions of despair even in these short uh, six verses, and, and more particularly the first two verses, right? Four times David asks, how long? How long, O God? And in that we see the depth of his emotions, right? The scope of his despair, this seemingly endless, relentless kind of experience of one acute episode after another. And as we think about David's life and the persecution that he felt, the point that he must have come to come to God, God himself, and say, how long? How much longer must I endure this? There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. And there, from what I've read, there was no confession of his own sin, so it doesn't seem linked to any guilt that he might have on, on his end. So he's coming to God, honestly, on the verge of falling over the edge to say, God, how long? And I ask us, have we felt this before? Have you felt this before? Have you gone through a season of life where it seemed relentless, where it seemed never-ending, where it seemed like one day after another was another cause of stress, of burden, of relational strife? Maybe you're going through a, a period of financial struggle, and you've, you have for a long season in your life. Maybe you're experiencing some health problems, and we're kind of understanding and seeing the, the depth of this pandemic around us still rearing its ugly head. Maybe there is this one relationship or a handful of relationships in your life for, for the longest time or even more poignantly, more recently, that you've experienced pain, strife in. Maybe it's lonely, loneliness, isolation. Are you in one of these seasons right now where you find yourself coming to God and saying, God, how much longer does this have to go on? How long? And in these prayers, in these exasperations of despair, of hopelessness, David also has the audacity to bring some accusations towards God, right? If we, if we reread verses 1 and 2, first he says, how long will you forget me forever? How long? God, you've neglected me. How long will you hide your face from me? How long, God, will you turn away and reject me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long do I have to do this by myself? How long are you going to let other people trample over me? So you can tell David is, is on the edge. He's on his last straw to, to bring himself to say, God, how long? Have you found yourselves asking God these very questions? Do you feel this almost bitterness, this anger, this grief towards God? I want to take a moment to pause right there, and, and I understand that I don't want to mitigate or lessen any of the pain or experience that you might feel, but I, I want to pause just to look at David's posture, right, to look at his tone, to look at why and how he's coming to God in this way. 
right? Putting aside the burden, the actual burden for now, which we will address in a little bit. But what David is, is showing us here is that no matter how big or how small pain or challenge or brokenness may be in our lives, there is always the right posture to take, and that is towards God. No matter how big your pain might be, no matter how big the despair is, that in the midst of it, the only place that we can turn to is God himself. Regardless of how deep, how unending, how seemingly irrational the suffering is, there is always somewhere and to someone you can direct that pain to. That in the midst of deep despair, God is the only place to turn. Our challenge is, our our temptation as human beings, though, is we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to lament, or we don't know how to channel that grief to God. We might be saying, God seems too far off. God seems like this abstract idea so that when I'm dealing with the, the ins and outs, the actual intricacies of my pain, I don't know that he fully understands how to address it. He's too distant. I feel too lonely. So then we default, right? How do we default and where do we default? We default to ourselves. We default to project that onto other people. As David says himself, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? How how long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? And so our alternative to bringing our grief, our brokenness, and our pain to God is to either direct that inward or direct it outward to other people. And even when this happens, we know that it doesn't work because David hasn't offered a solution for David, but for us, we know that that doesn't work. Like when you think about placing all of your burdens, your, your pain, your, your critiques, your thoughts onto somebody else, we realize that that other person has their own share of pains, of suffering, of, of brokenness, that it becomes too much to bear uh, for them, for us. And the irony here is that God is the only place willing, God is the only one willing and able to bear those burdens. As much as we might feel that he's too far off, too distant, God is the only one able and willing to do that. I have two young children, as, as do some of us here tonight. Uh, they're two and five. And I've had my fair share of, of tantrums, of just unrelenting, irrational, just kind of we're in the middle of Target and they're just on the floor crying, wailing about, right? But if you ever noticed, if you're a parent and you've noticed your children have tantrums, or if you're, if you're not a parent and you've seen tantrums happen, one thing that we realize when tantrums are happening is what? Is that they are almost always, without fail, directed at the parent. Like, have you ever seen a kid throw a tantrum in front of a complete stranger? Right? So they never, you know, they never are going to meet somebody completely new and feel the openness, the trust to be like, you are not feeling my needs. I'm going to explode in all this emotion and experience. But what children do is that when they feel the trust, when they feel the credibility, when they know the relationship of who they're throwing their tantrum to, that's when all of that comes out. And that's what we're seeing here in David. David knows God. David addresses God, not just as God or the Hebrew Elohim, he addresses him as the covenantal God of Israel, Yahweh. And he says, God, how long? I know you. I trust you. I know what you've promised us. I know where you've been in the past for our country, for my people, for my own life. 
So I'm directing all of this to you because I know you're the one who can bear it. So that even for us uh, as parents, as, as people who are around young children, we know that they do that because they trust us. They know us. They know that we can handle that kind of irrational uh, outburst. There's trust. There's relationship. There's safety in their minds when we do that. So this posture that David takes is one to know, I know who I am. I know who God is, and so this is why and how I can bring my griefs to God. It's because I know He hears me, I know that He loves me, and I know that He can bear this burden that nobody else can. In the moments of life's deepest despair and hopelessness, David turns to God, and he calls us, he reminds us to turn to God in that same way. God is the only one willing and capable, capable of bearing this despair, bearing this lament. So as was written by in our reflection, quote, your life is shaped by whom you cry to. Your life is shaped by whom you cry to. When you think about that, when you think about that one or two people that are your go-to people that you're like texting, man, this person said this again, or man, I experienced this at work again, you know that your life is shaped by your relationship with that person, right? That, that person's involvement and investment in your life means a lot, is, is shaping who you are, how you go about things. So in the very same way, the more that we do that with God, with Yahweh, with the living covenantal God, we will be more like Him. We will draw closer to Him that when we cry out to Him, that relationship grows, that trust is established, and that safety is, is solidified. So that's the, the temptation that we have as human beings is, is we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to channel those things. And to add to that problem, the modern problem of lament is that oftentimes we see lament or grief or even crying tears as, as powerless, as inefficient. Like why waste our time with these tears? Why waste our time with processing and counseling and, and treatment? And I'll be the first one to say that as a pastor, as uh, as somebody as some, whose wife is also a counselor, that a lot of this uh, action, a lot of the, these rhythms of expression, of, of um, being able to process, being able to uh, process your emotions are a healthy thing. It's not any way, it does not make you in any way weaker or less efficient or less productive uh, by doing that. And as we see here in David, that when we do that, we actually draw closer to God. Then when we are able to cry out to Him, to be honest and vulnerable with Him, to not, and we know when we're doing that, when we're trying to hide a couple of things, we're like, yeah, that hurts, but I guess, you know, that'll be remedied somewhere down the road. Um, but when we go to God, when we lay these burdens upon Him, He is the only one capable of knowing and willing to do that. There is nothing weak there's nothing inefficient. There's nothing unproductive about crying out to God. We don't have to feel a Christian guilt of putting up an image or an idea or this facade of, of who we want people to believe that we are. We don't have to muffle our cries anymore, but we offer them to God. And as we do so, our life is shaped by the person that we cry to, that, that God hears us, that He sees us, that He is present with us. So that's David's posture, how he's approaching God, how we are to approach God in lament and grief. And, and to, to finish out here, we'll look at his actual prayer. What, is, what are David's actual words 
What is the things that he's actually looking for and asking for? Uh, the progression of the psalm is that we saw in verse 1 and 2, there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of raw brokenness and honesty. And then we move on to the verses 3 and 4 where he actually lifts up a prayer and, and, and supplication. There are things that he asks God for. And in verse 3, we'll see three of those things. Verse 3 alone, it says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, and light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of that. So he says, consider me, answer me, and light up my eyes. So as was expressed in the first two uh, verses, David says, God, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to turn your face from me? And that, that imagery of turning your face from someone was something that was prominent in the listeners of, of ancient nearest Jewish listeners of this psalm to know that turning your, your face or God hiding his face from you was an expression of alienation, of, of curse. And so David knows that and exactly addresses that by asking for God to uh, light up my eye, verse 3, light up my eye. That on the very same way that hiding God's face was an exp, uh, explanation of, of alienation and curse, that the shining of God's face upon you, that as God shines his face upon you, signifies blessing and community and relationship. So the, the very three things that David asks, asks for, consider me, answer me, and light up my eyes, address the very accusations that, that David himself put before, right? When he says, consider me, God, God look at me, consider me, he's, he's saying, don't neglect me, don't reject me. God, answer me, don't hide your face from me, don't abandon me. And lastly, light up my eyes, enlighten me, don't let me be defeated by my enemies. The content of David's prayer, what he's actually praying affirms his own posture, affirms this relationship, this trust that he has with God, with the covenant God, because he knows exactly then what to ask for. When we feel neglected, when we feel rejected and defeated, the next logical step that we might think is to turn away or to turn inward, but David is reminding us again to, to turn towards God. Have you ever had a fight with somebody, maybe with your spouse or maybe with a good friend, and uh, you come to a point where you're like, I'd much rather you yell and scream at me rather than give me the cold shoulder and the, the apathetic treatment, right? I'd rather you be able to express what it is that you're feeling. I'd rather you be able to just let it all out rather than you just, you know, shut down and not talk to me. Uh, and in the very same way, God wants us to be able to express, wants us to be able to let all of those things out and, and bury those into His chest versus thinking like, God can't handle me. God doesn't know what I'm going through. I'm just going gonna, gonna to turn this and direct this elsewhere. That's our temptation uh, when we come to points of hardness, of brokenness. So even what David prays lines up with, with how he's praying. He prays for the exact things that he needs. He's willing to, in the midst of his deep despair and grief, to turn to God. He's willing to ask God for the very things that are weighing him down. And in the midst of deep despair, God is the only place that he, return, he turns to. And as he continues on in verse 4, he says, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. 
It's a very interesting prayer, this supplication that David has towards God. He said, God, help me, consider me, answer me, and light my eyes so that my enemies can see what you're doing and also hold you accountable for the promises that you've given to me and my people, right? He's, he's calling into question God's uh, witness and his, his promises, right? Because as God promises to preserve Israel, to preserve his people, that it, by, by way of delivering them, his enemies don't have testimony over God to say, look, God failed in that moment. God, God failed to do what he, what he promised to do. So he's actually holding God accountable to his character, to his good word, to his promises, calling upon the witness of God. And so what we see David doing here is not necessarily about the power of his enemies, but what they're able to do and how dangerous they are, but he's just bringing himself to like, so long as I trust God, all of that will go away. As long as I can bring myself into a posture, into a position where I am in a relationship and I am in this open dialogue with God, all of the temptations, all of the fears of my enemies will go by the wayside. If you're ever in uh, the work of handiwork, of repair, of hardware, I think there's this running joke that if you ever have a problem, just, just throw some WD-40 on it, right? Um, and I, and I kind of looked that up because I've heard that numerous times, and I found this webpage that says 34 surprising uses of WD-40. If, if you don't know what WD-40 is, what I, as a common man who knows nothing about household repair, I use WD-40 whenever our door hinges are getting a little creaky and I don't want to open the door and wake up my children, right? So that's what I use WD-40 for. But when I read this webpage, I was fascinated by what you can use WD-40 for, right? You can fix squeaky hinges and rusted parts, check. You could renew faded plastic furniture. I did not know that. You can clean carpet stains. You can prevent snow buildup on your windows. That would have been really helpful tonight or last week. You can waterproof your boots. You can keep wasps and spiders away from various parts of your house. You can remove chewing gum from your hair. You can remove paint scuffs and off cars and off the floor. You can break in a baseball glove. You can kill weeds. You can free and loosen Lego blocks for parents with young children. And you can remove crayon and markers from walls. So like, it really is like this answer to everything that you might find in your household. You got a broken arm, throw some WD-40 on it, right? And so it's this idea, it's no matter what the problem is, no matter what the threat of your enemy is, that, that's, that's you know, irrelevant. So long as you can bring yourself to be in a relationship, to trust God, to find your safety in Him, all of that threat, all of those problems go away. God is the divine WD-40, if you will, right? It's not a matter of how bad the problem is, so long as you bring yourself in faith with Him. It's not so much the quality of your own faith, but the object of who you're placing that faith in, in the living God. And so David closes out his prayer in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. So if verse 3 and 4 were all the, the right answers, the theologically sound and orthodox uh, kind of treatise of, of how to pray to God, in verses 5 and 6 we see the hope, the foundation of where it all lies. I have placed my trust in your steadfast love, in your chesed, in your covenantal love. 
right? It's not just a love that conveys the warm fuzzies, like, I'm in love with the Lord, but it's this covenant faithfulness, this loyalty, this commitment to see that it's not dependent on the circumstances. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Now, salvation is, is more than what we might think of it, and as we talked about in the beginning of the service, salvation is this bringing of God's peace this bringing of the same communion and relationship and flourishing that we had with God in Eden that was lost. So for the people of God, it was the whole well-being of theirs. As one scholar puts it way better than I can, shalom, this peace, salvation, means far more than a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Then when David says, my heart will rejoice in your salvation, we are rejoicing in the very work that God did to bring us back to himself. And lastly, in verse 6, because the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Uh, in, this, in this phrase, in the, in the words that he uses, there's a sense of completeness that other commentators will say. Another way that David is saying this is that the Lord has granted all of my desires. So in the midst of deep despair, God is the only place to turn. Not only does he know how to bear and is willing to bear these griefs and these burdens, but he does so that, so that we can come to a place where we say, I trust in God's steadfast love. I find joy in his salvation, and God has granted all of my desires. How? In and through the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we consider all of life's despair, when we are reminded, we are reminded that, that we can turn to God who will show us this steadfast love, this covenantal love, this, these good promises because of what Christ has done for us and fulfilled for us. The one who offers us a complete and perfect salvation, a context of flourishing of the way things ought to be because of what Jesus has ushered into our lives. Jesus grants us all of our desires. He deals bountifully with us as God's one and only Son. It's not the quality and the strength of our faith of how tight we can hold on and how much we can trust God, but it's who we place our faith in, the one who is willing to die for us, the one who is actually able to pay for our sins so that we might be restored in this relationship with God. So I ask us, where do we find ourselves when we find life's despair, life's challenges, our heartaches? And this is an ongoing process. This is not something that we learn overnight. Much like a relationship is not built in a day, we build this credibility, this trust. We sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior to know that this is somebody who can handle my griefs and then who in turn answers me by the closeness of relationship with Him of offering me more of Jesus. And that is our hope and prayer for all of us. Let's pray together.